Well, good morning. Open your Bibles and take a trip into Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, page 849 here. I've never done this as a parent, but I've heard of parents who have uh, left some cash lying around the house just to see what their kids would do when they found it. It was kind of like a, an integrity or an honesty test. Will they keep it? Will they hide it? Will they go out and, and spend it? Or will they tell mom and dad they found it and, uh, and return it? Whether, that, that, whether creating that dilemma is a good parenting idea or not is not my point today, but basically that's what our parable is about that Jesus told in Luke 16. Because money is a stewardship test. God has let, left some money lying around. A little bit for everybody. And his test is the integrity, the honesty, but ultimately the stewardship test. What will my children do with the money that I leave for them? Because his point in this parable will be that how we manage that money he leaves lying around for us is actually going to determine what he can trust us with that is more important than money. The money he allows us to manage is a test to determine what can he trust us with that is more important than money. This, uh, this parable is considered one of the most unusual parables Jesus told, but it is very specifically about a money manager a steward who worked for a rich man who had the money. And uh, while the story might be a bit strange to us, I think as we go through it, we'll understand that the basic point is crystal clear and shows us just how important it is how we manage God's money. Notice the first line of verse 1, Jesus told his disciples... So this is a, a, a parable for us, for you. If you are a believer in Christ, you want to follow Christ, this is very specifically for you. He's just previously finished uh, in chapter 15 telling the story of the prodigal son and the lost coin and some of those things which we're told at the beginning was for the Pharisees in the crowd. But now he's like turning to, to uh, the followers and says, if you want to be my followers, then money is a stewardship test, a very important one. Let me read the first eight verses. The parable is the first eight verses, and then he applies them starting in verse 9. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager or steward was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. 
so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. You may have it in measures of oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Isn't that kind of a strange story? Uh, it, it's strange for a lot of reasons, but one is that we like our good guys and bad guys clearly defined. And this one kind of leaves us with some mixed feelings. But Jesus is the master storyteller, and so it's no accident that we kind of feel like, wait, are we supposed to like this guy or not? Because as we read the story, we go, I don't like this guy. We're, we're accusing him of, of all that he's done wrong, but that surprise ending when the master affirms and, and actually compliments the guy kind of catches our attention, and I think that's the point, because we ask, why? What? what is it about this guy that is in any way commendable or praiseworthy? And when we answer that question, we've understood the main point of Jesus' story. So this guy, verse 1, is accused of wasting or squandering the master's possessions. Interestingly, it's exactly the same word for squandering that described the prodigal son in the previous chapter, Luke 15. He squandered the, the inheritance he received from his father or demanded from his father. And so this word, though, is not about stealing money. It, the issue here is not that he was pilfering it. If, if he had been, we would assume that he had been instantly out the door, dragged before the court. But that's not what happens. The guy wasn't dishonest, it seems. He was incompetent. He was incompetent somehow deliberately because he was negligent. He was responsible for the man's portfolio, for his, his treasures, for his land, for his investments, and had control of the rich man's wealth. And he blew it. Maybe it was sloppy bookkeeping. Maybe it was bad investments. Maybe it's just lazy. We don't know for sure. But the rich man, we are told, has already decided, verse 2, I'm going to fire you, but I'll give you time to, to finish up the books that you have going. Uh, then you've got to turn it over, and you're gone. I suppose the, the owner might have thought, well, maybe, maybe he'll have some kind of defense when he, when he looks over his books. But you're going to give me an account. What did you do with my money? And your last days on the job are for you to maybe show, show me your work. So if the guy wanted to defend himself, this would be the time to do it. But clearly this unfaithful steward knew he had no leg to stand on. There's no way he was going to be able to defend his negligence or incompetence. So he does something that is, we think, not very good. He spends his last days on the job 
planning for his future survival after he loses his job, and we're kind of aghast at how he goes about it. Because what he does is he uses that little bit of, little window of time that he still has the authority of the master to go work some deals that are in his favor. And he hastily reduced some debts that his that were owed to his master. So in, in, verse, in verse 3, he's asking the question, what shall I do? He's all about himself. And we get this little monologue, soliloquy of his, his thoughts. This, this is what he's thinking. What shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig. We're going to guess he's a little bit older. I mean, nobody really likes digging jobs for very long, but if you're a little bit older, you know I, I, physical labor is not going to pay my way anymore. And I'm ashamed to beg. I mean, that's, that's humiliating. I've, I've, been, I've been this, this portfolio manager and, 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 and got this status in the community. There's no way I'm going to be sitting there with the beggars. But what am I going to do? Because I'm going to be jobless. I'm, I'm blackballed from any other money management job. My resume is now useless. I have ruined my reputation. I'm pretty desperate. And so this incompetent, selfish man all of a sudden has an idea. I know what I'll do. And so verse 4 tells us what he's going to do. So that when I lose my job, he thinks, when I'm removed from this stewardship responsibility, people will receive me into their homes. Because you know what I'm really going to need when I'm without a job? Is I'm going to need a place to stay. I'm going to need some friends who feel obligated to help me. And so suddenly this unfaithful steward is, is suddenly ambitious to take care of his future. And he begins making appointments with people who owe his owner money. And he goes to talk to them about their debt, which is in the form of commodities. The first one is, uh, literally the phrase is, a hundred measures of oil, that's olive oil, equal to about 800, 900 gallons. Our best guess is that the rich man owned land, and these were farmers who, who farmed the land for him on a cash-rent basis. So year by year, they were responsible to, to pay the owner a certain amount of the commodities. But maybe the crops have been poor for a year or two, and so they're falling behind, and they can't, they can't come up with the commodities for the cash-rent. And so the, the, the steward in these final days of his employment says, sit down and write down quickly 50 measures. In other words, cut it in half and we're good. So the steward still had actual authority for these few days, and he writes out binding legal documents in the name of the, of the owner, the rich guy. And the the farmer has to be delighted because suddenly, I mean, he, he has that much. And to think I can get out from under this debt load just by, by signing this paper and, and turning over half, he probably thinks, my, this rich guy is actually a nicer guy than I thought he was. Goes to the next one, 100 measures of wheat, or, which is 1,000 bushels approximately. This measure or core was about 10 bushels each, so 100 times... Uh, 10 is 1,000 bushels. So uh, write 80 measures or 800 bushels. Uh, that farmer is also delighted to get a discounted debt relief settlement. 
So kind of like us listening to this story, I suppose the disciples are sitting there going, Jesus, what am I supposed to like about this guy? This, this, uh, he's, this isn't right, you can't do that, that's, that's, that's cheating. And in fact, in verse 8, when Jesus finishes the, the story part, he calls him a dishonest manager. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Uh, the word dishonest is literally unrighteous. So Jesus labels this guy as bad. So he says, yeah, he's a bad guy. Unrighteous. Some people have read the stories and thought, well, maybe what the steward was doing was like you know, forfeiting his commissions on, on, on this or something. But now pretty clear the owner was going to eat these negotiated losses. But now there was legitimate legal paperwork and the rich man was obligated to accept these reduced repayment of debts. And we would expect that the rich man would be furious, but he's not furious. Jesus tells this story with a surprising twist because the owner praises his steward who has really just cheated him. He commended the dishonest or unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly. It's like, it's like this business-minded guy says, you know what? You, you outwitted me, bud. You got me on that one. Because now the rich man can't go to court and contest these documents because they're legit documents. And you really, he really couldn't go to the court and, and sue his steward either, who probably didn't really own anything, right? He's managing someone else's money. Plus to go and try to put him in jail would just kind of put him in bad graces in the court of public opinion. So he realized, I'm in a bind. I just gotta, I've got to accept this. He says, that's shrewd. Shrewd's a good word for it, I guess. It's, a, it's actually a, a form of the, the New Testament word for wisdom, but it's kind of, it's kind of wisdom with a, with a little connotation to it, like, you got me. We might say smart. He commended him because he, was, he, he had the business smarts to do this. He was, and in fact, Jesus, even in that last comment in verse 8, makes, makes the observation that people of this world are often smarter uh, about money stuff, then people of the light, that's us, you know, it's a little bit of a backhanded compliment, but as we see the story goes along, that as smart as unbelievers might be with money, they are short-sighted. They are short-sighted, and we're called to be people of the light who have the long view of money. So we have a steward who is incompetent for this job for as many years as he had it. He ends up his final days cheating his employer. So what is there good that we're supposed to learn by watching a selfish steward outwit who we're going to assume is a selfish, rich man? What's good about that? Well, parables typically have one main point. And sometimes we can make a mistake reading a parable and trying to you know, well, what do the leaves on the tree represent? Or, you know, we can try to make it say too much. So there's usually one main point to a parable. And this one becomes more clear because we have mixed feelings about the guy, but it kind of like puts them in the, in the background because the issue is that he is complimented 
for planning ahead. He is complimented for using money to do that which would be best for him in the future. And that's our lesson, and that's the very first application that Jesus makes in verse 9. So he says, I tell you. And again, notice that uh, he says you, and we know from verse 1 he's talking to disciples now, right? People who follow Christ, us, are supposed to learn something from this. You, not the Pharisees, who are actually in the crowd, we'll find out in verses 14 and 15. It's not like, it's not like they were absent and he's a, you know, in, a, in a room quiet with, with, with his disciples. He's still preaching, teaching in, in public but now he's talking to his guys, his family, just like that's basically what we do here on, on, on a weekend service like this. We, this is family truth, but anybody can walk into a service. Anybody can join us online. Uh, but basically we talk about family truth here. So Jesus says, verse 9, I tell you, this is what you do, to, to, to apply this, this story I told. Use worldly wealth, money. To gain friends for yourselves, your friends, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what's he saying we should change? What, what should followers of Christ change in our thinking about money from this story is that we're supposed to use money to gain friends for ourselves who will welcome us where? In heaven. So what, what, what friend, friends are people. We are to win friends using money. What kind of friends? Eternal friends. So that when it is gone, now here's a little clarification, depending on which Bible translation you're looking at, it either says when it is gone, which would mean money, or else it says when you fail, which would refer to, to death. It's actually a little bit of difference in the Greek manuscripts. I actually think that what the, the New King James or whatever says is, 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 the most, uh, is the correct use of this. They both point to eternity, but basically be saying, use money so that when you die, that, that's, that's, the, that's the ending point, so that when you die, you will have friends who welcome you into eternal dwellings. So the steward in this story has pulled off this shrewd scheme, which we are not to admire. This, the lesson is, don't go and cheat your employer. But he is affirmed, he is complimented, he is praised for the way he planned ahead. He used money to plan ahead for his future. As we apply it in a good way, then, use money to win friends for heaven because you and I as children of the light have a whole different view of the future. We have a long view of the future. And so someday in heaven we can meet people that we helped get there. Isn't that amazing? It might be because we taught Sunday school for years and uh, that day when that kid understood the gospel 
as we shared it. It could be because we were teaching in one of the after-school Bible classes at Dunwoody or Thomas Jefferson, and the lights went on, and someone put their faith in Christ. Right now, today, uh, we have um, nine adult leaders up at Fort Wilderness, traveled with, I think, 43 of our middle schoolers and high schoolers. Those nine leaders didn't get much sleep the last two nights, I'm betting. And uh, they, they've, they've played hard, and they've had dozens of conversations to try to spiritually help kids who have put their faith in Christ and praying for and trying to help some who will have gone who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. And so as we pray for them to come back safely, we also pray they come back saved. You and I will someday meet believers from Paraguay, Indonesia, India, Papua New Guinea, and the Philippines. We'll meet believers from Ozaki County and Sheboygan County and Washington County and Milwaukee County, all of whom are represented by numbers in the 2023 budget that we're meeting tonight at the congregational meeting to approve. Because it's about people. God didn't create us so that we could have a life that was more fun than others, though he gives us much joy. He didn't create us so that we could own the best stuff or even that we would have the best health. These are all things that are the blessings of God, but he created us and he put us together and he called us to salvation. He places us in a church and then he says before he left for heaven, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so you see, we have a different view of what has true value. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone or when you have died, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We're supposed to, this is about, this is bigger than money, but it's focused on true riches. We should steward all of our life, our time, our skills, spiritual gifts, opportunities, relationships, and money for that which is eternal. And so that passage that, that Chris read earlier is about making sure that we are investing our money, time, and energy into things that will last forever. So do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It can all be lost somehow. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So he's asking, is our heart on this life till we get to the finish, life, finish line when we finish? Or is our mind on eternal treasure, things that will last? Somebody, in I think, reflecting on this verse made the statement, I don't know who first said it. You can't take it with you, but you can actually send it on ahead, is the idea. And so the steward in our story was planning for later in this life. That's all that the people of this world know to do, is to plan ahead for this life, retirement. 
And in fact, I think verse 8 was saying they actually do a pretty good job of that. It's a, it's a good thing. There's no criticism on, on retirement planning here. But then he says, we who are disciples following Christ understand that, that God has left money lying around for us because we would have our eyes on eternity. Basically, the comparison is this. Everybody dies. And there's the short view of life, which is simply this physical life that unbelievers would, would have. And so they, they have, they have a, a financial plan of what they, want, what they want to use money for now. And then, of course, you've got to plan for the, their future. That's, that's for retirement. That's the end of their plan. He says, you guys, you guys understand life a little different than that. We also need money for now, and, and part of that is there should be money. You want to be diligent and save money for retirement and make plans for that. But you have a different view of the future. Make friends for yourselves so that when you fail, you die, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There's no money in heaven. I know the streets are paved with gold, but in other words, the money has been reduced to concrete, pretty much. Because there's nothing to buy, nothing you need, nothing to transact. You're not going to make your dwelling look better than the other guy's dwelling. So there's no money in heaven. What there is is people in Jesus. Seated at the right hand of the Father and among all the things that God has planned for those who love him and are in heaven with him to enjoy, there is this celebration of the, of the angels and the redeemed celebrating the grace of God. The guy in the story was about to get fired, and so he planned ahead for after he was fired. And Jesus is saying, we're all going to get fired from life. So, so plan ahead. Use worldly wealth to win friends. So money is one of those resources. It also takes time, like I said, spiritual gifts, taking opportunities. But money must be a really big deal. Because essentially, and, and, and if it wasn't clear yet, verses 10, 11, and 12 make it clear, that the stewardship of money is actually that test by which God says, this is how much I can allow you to be involved in eternal things on earth. If you can, if you can view money that way, you can view ministry that way. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So you trust him with a little? Like, like, like the parent leaving some money? Can, they, can you trust him with money? So verse 11, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So true riches is the opposite of the worldly wealth. And verse 12, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own. There's, some, there's almost some, some, maybe for us, some, some surprising new thoughts here. That how we manage earthly money tests whether God can trust us with eternal ministry. All three statements really are making the same 
parallel point. Trusted with little versus trusted with much. What is the little? Well, the little is the money of this life versus what? Much would be eternal things. So God said, I I give you a little bit of responsibility. You have some things to manage materially. And how you do with that determines what I can trust you with that will matter in heaven someday. It's like if you're the boss and you hire a new employee and uh, you want to see how they're going to do and so you give them a responsibility. you're, You're watching because you want to know if they do a good job with that, can you trust them with a, a larger responsibility? Something that will come with a little bit more uh, responsibility, more interest, it'll be more significant things. It'll make the job so much more interesting if you can trust them with more and more. But in this context, the money is the small thing. And the little bit of money we have on earth determines if we can be entrusted with much ministry that will make a difference in heaven. And the stewardship here, I don't think, is just about giving money to missions or ministry. The stewardship of money here is not just about the 10% or what percent you might give. This is really about our management of all the material things because we are responsible as stewards of it all. So how we buy, spend, save, invest, risk, everything. That's the money test of stewardship. And God is into bigger stuff than how prosperous we are. He is into eternal things. But he says, if I, if I see you over here and you're, you're, you're managing things selfishly and foolishly with money, then how can I trust you with something that's even more important to me? God says. But money is like that first little thing that God says. Let me, let me see how you do with this. Second comparison, just like it in verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Do you see the point? The true, true riches. We see this principle, just something as simple as uh, 1 Timothy 3, 5, in the list of elders and deacons, qualification, it says, someone who manages his household well. And, it, and obviously it includes marriage and parenting. But what's a part of a household when you think of it, especially in the first century, the household's the term that meant you know, everything that is kind of under your management materially as well as your family. And then the third one. And if you have, this is interesting. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What's the someone else's property? That's everything material. That's everything money. Why is it someone else's property? Because we don't keep it. <laughs> Just like this, this whole uh, stewardship story, it was the rich man's stuff. And the issue is, are we faithful with the rich man's stuff? That's someone else's property. But if we're faithful with that, what is it saying? Then we get property of our own. So we've become so used to thinking of, what do I own? Because i got the title. There's a deed in the file cabinet. I log in with my email and my password to that account, and there's the numbers. 
We get so used to thinking of that as our property. And so it's a, it's a very direct challenge by Jesus to his disciples, that's us, to say, you realize you're just managing someone else's property, right? But if you're faithful with someone else's property, I'll give you property of your own. People are personal riches in the spiritual, divine, eternal economy. People. He says, if I can trust you with money, I can trust you with impacting people with your money, gifts, time, spirit, uh, spiritual gifts, skills, opportunities. So I, I think this, this is like the wake-up call, big-time motivation. This is, I don't think this is just about eternal rewards like there's, you know, the crown thing that we're going to be honored. This is that we'll be able to spend eternity enjoying the fruit of our life. Could be it was a kid who came to faith in your lesson. Could be a kid who you were reading the Bible stories to every evening for how many years. But this is, this is the big leagues. Money is the little leagues. So pay careful attention, he says, to your financial stewardship that you, whatever that financial test involves for you right now because it is, God is testing you about what he can trust you with eternally. So really, these statements have all been, been parallel as you've been applying the story of the stewardship. The test of money which does not last, but the result of the test, if we pass it, is ministry that does. Use worldly wealth eternal dwellings. You're trusted with little, then I can trust you with much. You're trusted with handling worldly wealth, I can trust you with true riches. And finally, someone else's property? I'll give you property of your own. In other words, property that lasts. God grades the spiritual money test. He's grading scale is very different than what we might think of if you listen to the prosperity preachers. It sounds like, you know, if you if you accumulate a lot, you must be more spiritual. But it's not at all that. It's that rather that how you manage whatever it is you have that determines faithfulness. But the stewardship is really a big deal. How does God administer this test? Some, some believers are trusted with six-figure incomes and maybe much more. Another believer is entrusted with like subsistence level income. Might be a single mom who's living in an apartment, a couple of kids to take care of, but she's faithful with the money that God's provided because she's come to see that God is her provider. And she uses her limited income wisely, and she gives in proportion to what her ability is, and God rewards her with true riches such as children who see what a faithful walk with Christ looks like in their mom. Proof of the gospel to them that it really makes a difference because they see an unselfish mom. And the mom experiences the fruit maybe of encouraging and, and helping and witnessing to another single mom in the apartment complex. And God says, well done. She's been a good financial steward of 
the property of God, someone else's property, and so God has given her some eternal property of her own. The next person might be a wealthy businessman with the same mindset because he works hard too. Just like the single mom works hard for her money and he works hard for his. Spends and invests wisely and rewards employees fairly and generously. Also gives proportionately. Just has an open hand with what it means to be a steward of God. And while we would look at those two and we, we immediately draw these comparisons and go, wow, that guy is managing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and she's just managing you know, the, the money to get by as if there's a difference. And God says, I see him doing exactly the same thing. Because it's all little to God. No amount of money impresses God. So they both are passing the test. But this, this man, his wealth is different. But the true wealth that he's experiencing is not the way his estate is growing. But it's the opportunities he has with his children and with his employees and maybe sharing Christ with a business friend or maybe his real wealth is what's happening when he teaches the third and fourth graders. And God says, you're both faithful with my property, I want to give you ministry that has lasting value. And so that discussion, applying the stewardship test, leads Jesus to repeat what he said in Matthew 6 that we read earlier. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Serving two masters is like trying to drive two directions at once. So what drives your decisions? The leading of God or the demands of money? Our choices always reveal our priorities. If something takes large chunks of time in our, in our week, that's our priority. If something takes a lot of money, that's our priority. Uh, obviously a job is whatever your career is is going to be a priority but even that sometimes you have opportunity to take a different job or you, you of course you think about your career this is good this is this is legitimate ambition and but but if you had a job offer does money make that decision it's a it's a it's a consideration obviously right is it the motivation or do you ask the question like well, if I take this job, what would it do to my values spiritually in my family? And what would, I, what would it do in terms of, of commitment to, to serving Christ with my gifts and abilities? What would it do in terms of my fellowship with the church? Are we, are we asking those questions? Because if you realize that God is your provider and you are a steward of that which he provides then would God make a mistake and accidentally force you into a financial corner in which you would have to make a decision that would violate other priorities he has for your life? Probably not. I talked to somebody whose uh, job pay because it fit their family's spiritual priorities better. That's not normal. That is the stewardship test. 
So here's Jesus' core decisions. Does money make your decisions when there's a conflict between God and, and money? You know, it's just a couple of chapters before this, chapter 14. Jesus says so much about money here in, uh, in Luke. But in Luke 14, 16 to 20, Jesus was telling about a man who was putting on a big banquet and he had sent out invitations and people knew that this banquet was coming and so then he sent some people around to give you know, reminders, are you coming to my banquet? And he got three excuses, two of which were financial excuses. They couldn't come to the banquet because A, I've bought a field and I want to go look at it and B, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I want to go check those things out. And so Jesus' point was, that Jesus is the banquet host, and he's inviting us to fellowship. He's inviting us to serve him. He's inviting us to be part of an eternal kingdom. But, you know, I can't come, Jesus. I bought some stuff I need to focus on. Verse 13 is really the end of Jesus' application of the parable. But um, there's a little bit more because the Pharisees were there. And, and you could hear some, some sneering in the peanut gallery. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. We don't know exactly what it is they were muttering or sneering or blurting out. But we are told the issue, and the issue is that these Pharisees loved money. I would imagine there were no poverty-level Pharisees. Uh, they considered themselves to be part of the spiritual, to be the spiritual elite. And somehow, by being the spiritual elite, sitting at those favorable places in all the banquets and so forth, they put them in a favorable position in the business community as well. They really prospered, and Jesus knew that's actually what you're really about. You, you, you talk about, you know, how you're devoted to God and the religion. You justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but actually God sees your heart, and you have this very problem I was just talking about. You love God. You love money instead of God. God knows your hearts that what is highly valued among men is detestable, in God's sight. Uh, highly valued, we get that in this one, that money is highly valued, right? It's actually detestable in God's sight, not, not money itself, loving money instead of God. And so you have these, these Pharisees who, you know, they were, they were always keeping score on righteousness with their checklist of laws. But they actually were swinging and missing on the most important of all the laws. Jesus told us which one was the most important. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can't do that when you love money. So God actually, Jesus says, God hates your love of money. Because it's come to replace him. God's left some money lying around for each of us. We can hoard it, hide it, enjoy it, compare it to others. We will use it. We need to use it. It's the economy of life. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But it's a stewardship test. We give it all back. It all goes back in the box like Monopoly money. 
eventually. And the real test of our faithfulness with it is where we thinking of the long view that we understand as believers or just like everybody else is about worldly wealth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you call us week by week to an a, uh, eternal perspective of everything. Uh, guide and guard our hearts. You know how much we use and need money. And so it became for you the perfect uh, platform on which for you to uh, test our hearts, uh, to show yourself faithful in providing, and to give us the uh, perspective where we must, we must think about eternity and that which will matter forever. So thank you for your provision. Thank you for... Uh, the way in which you call us and give us all the resources of all of our life. May we see ourselves as stewards of everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.